and sing the... No, she's not going to sing it. She's going to read the passage for us that we're looking at today. Our reading is taken from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And it's on 1,236 in the Bibles in your pews. The throne in heaven. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Audrey. Uh, I, she, they always say she never starts a sermon with an apology, but I'm going to break that one. I apologise to those of you who were at the evenings, uh, con- when we planted, we just planted a new evening congregation, And uh, on the very first one, I preached on this passage because I didn't realise we were doing it as part of our series. So if you were in an evening some time ago, I apologise. But you probably won't remember anyway, will you? (laughs) (laughs) Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your words. 
and that the things that we read might change the way we think and live today in the light of all that we see around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I noticed that a cartoon going around yesterday, which had been put together by, I think, drawn one of a series by the cartoonist at Charlie Hebdo, the uh, magazine in Paris, in effect saying, please don't pray for this situation. We want to keep religion out of it. And you kind of understand what was uh, behind that. But it, it brings a question, doesn't it? When you see things like that going on in our world, and of course it wasn't just in Paris, it's been in all sorts of places pretty much every day for much of the time most of us have been alive in one part of the world or another. But it comes very close. And we wonder how do we respond in the face of what we see, and particularly as Christians, as those who purport to believe in God. What are we to say in the face of murderous tyrants when all evil seems to rampage and so coolly kill and maim? Well, I want to say to you that the book of Revelation is written into that situation. It is written into exactly that context when it was written. And therefore, it has something very significant to say to us, which we need to hold on to, whatever a cartoonist may say and feel at this moment. Because remember, John, the apostle, and his people are facing a time of cruel oppression and persecution. The church has been targeted by a tyrant back then who was the emperor, Caesar Domitian. He has killed 40,000 Christians, just killed them in cold blood. The church is weakened. The church is also thrown into confusion by false teaching and immorality which have come in from one direction or another. Life in the church of Christ back then is chaotic. John has been separated from them. One of their key leaders has been separated. He's been imprisoned on a hard labour prison camp on Patmos. And you can imagine for the church then, life must have felt out of control as far as the human eye could see. But in the midst of that, the people of God are given some insights. And they are told this. When all around you on earth is chaotic and out of control and evil appears to be rampaging, the way to make sense of it is to look at heaven. We're often accused, aren't we, of being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Well, the Bible's view is it is the opposite. That when all is breaking loose around you and going... Very pear-shaped. The place you need to look is heaven. But not just heaven in the future, but heaven right now. You need to understand the spiritual realities going on behind the scenes right now if we're to make sense of all that's going on in our world. And John is given the ability in this vision to see what up till then no one could see. He's given a glimpse into the heavenly realms. Look at it. Do you see chapter 4 and verse 1? I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. There are many stories of people having near-death experiences. Uh, You'll have read books, I'm sure, seen films. Uh, Most days, or certainly every other day on my Facebook feed, there is some story from one Christian website or another about someone who's been to heaven and tells us what it's like. Some even have been to hell and tell us what it's like. I'm going to be honest here. I am wary of putting much stock by the stories that come. I don't doubt people's experiences in themselves, but I'm never sure about how authoritative I can take those for me to read into heaven. 
And actually, we don't need to because John is alive when he gets this vision. And actually, he gives us the vision we need of heaven. And it's important, though, to remember that John is still sat on a rock pile on the island of Patmos. The point here is John is not transported to some other place and then dumped back down on earth once he's seen it. For John, the heavenly dimension is right here, right now. Heaven is not up there, out there somewhere, all distant and remote. Heaven is literally around us. It is a spiritual dimension that we don't see, but which is close at hand and interacts with our world, at times perceptibly, most times imperceptibly. As one Bible writer has said, so one Bible commentator has said, heaven is part of the universe, but a part which is entered by the opening of the spiritual eye rather than by any external form of transit. So on a rock pile on the island of Patmos, Jesus pulls back the veil, the imperceptible curtain that lies between us and the heavenly realities in order that we might see those heavenly realities that are just a curtain's breadth away. It is mind-blowing stuff, but it is meant to be life-transforming stuff for those facing chaos and evil in their world day by day. So what is it that John sees? What is the vision that he's given? Well, there it is in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. There is a throne at the heart of the image of heaven. The throne is the most dominant image that comes up in the book of Revelation. John refers to a throne directly 47 times. And if you take in allusions through other images, 77 times. The throne sits at the heart of the book of Revelation and this vision of heaven. And what does it mean? It means very simply there is a headquarters. There is a supreme control centre of the universe. There is a seat of authority and power. But actually, that's not enough in itself, is it? Actually, what we need to see, according to this passage, is what is on the throne and what is around the throne. Because what is on the throne, look. Look, he says, verse 2, there is someone sitting on it. There is someone occupying the throne, and it is not up for grabs. Why is that so important to a church facing what they were facing there? Because it's very easy at times, isn't it? And we know that when we go through times of suffering to think that the HQ is vacant, that there is no one actually in the control room of heaven at all. Or perhaps worse, there's been a coup and the forces of chaos and evil have stormed the control room and taken over. It must have felt like that to John and his church must there, mustn't it? Where is God in this? I thought he was meant to be in control and yet 40,000 of us have lost our lives What must it feel like in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan if you're a Christian today, in Nigeria, where even this day they are having their heads removed brutally? Where is God in the midst of all of this? It seems like evil is control. And yet this passage tells us, no, 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 there is someone sitting on the throne and it is not evil. Look, verse 3 He speaks there, doesn't he? It's just got these images. You almost get a sense that John is grasping, trying desperately to explain in words that which is almost indescribable. And so he says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. 
kingly jewels, translucent, pure, bright jewels. It's meant to give that imagery of here is a throne on which sits a king of beauty and purity and majesty and radiance and glory. This is no evil force that sits on the throne. Look at verse 8, as uh, those creatures sing, they proclaim him to be the Lord God Almighty. John here uses the word pantikratos, which means all might. We so easily say, don't we, Almighty God in our prayers. But what John is being told here is that on the throne is the one who has all power, all might, all strength that there is nothing at all that could possibly overwhelm him or overpower him or usurp him. He's trying to say to John and to others and to us, don't ever, ever doubt God's power and control in this universe, no matter what it looks like. Do not doubt his overarching power and control. He's also the holy, holy, holy God. Verse 9 You see, when the Bible says something twice, it says it for emphasis. But when it says it three times, it is saying that God is holy beyond holiness. Utter purity. Utter otherness. You see, the great danger is that as human beings, we judge God by human standards. And we know that, don't we? Because how often do we hear people say, especially when we live in a chaotic world, if I was God, I'd do this. Why doesn't God do that? God, that's not fair. You should do this. That's how we betray it, don't we? In effect, we think we know better than God. And we judge things by our own standards, by our own ways of thinking, and by what we believe is right, wrong, and the right way to deal with things. And we say, God, you're an idiot. You don't know, and we know better. And John is being reminded, no, he is holy, Holy, holy. He is completely other than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Do not measure God by our ways and our standards. He is utterly other. But verse 11, we're reminded why that is. But it's because he is the creator of all things. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. There is nothing that has life today. There is nothing that has breath today except because God wills it and allows it. The Caesars of John's day, even Domitian, ISIS, Assad, leaders in North Korea, your nightmare boss, your neighbour, family member who causes you untold problems, they owe their very being to the one who is on the throne and they only strut the stage of human history because he allows it. But you know the most important thing about this image of the one on the throne? It is that he sits. He sits on the throne. Never in the book of Revelation does God ever stand. He sits. Why? Because there is no threat. He doesn't have to stand to defend that throne against one who might come to take it. He sits because he has utter control. There is no fear. So what is the application of that? It means to us that no matter what life gets for us today, on a world scale or a personal scale, however chaotic it gets, our God is in control. He has a plan, and what is happening right now does not mess up that plan. 
You see, the book of Revelation, if you did uh, Sam's overview, uh, tells us that actually the book of Revelation is not primarily just about the future. It is explaining what is happening in human history. Uh, We're reminded in the New Testament that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, that on the cross he defeated Satan and all those powers and principalities. He won the victory. The problem is Satan has no power over Jesus, but he is still in existence. And the book of Revelation tells us that he has not yet been dealt with, that one day he will be removed. One day there will be that final judgment and Satan will be removed. But at the moment, he is still active in our world and he cannot attack Jesus because Jesus has won the victory over him. But what he can do is attack that which is closest to Jesus, that is his church and the world that he loves. And so that is what Satan continues to do. But it is not that God is out of control. It is that he has a plan, but his plan for judgment is not yet. His plan for now is that in the midst of all this chaos, that his church, as weak as it looks, reaches out with the good news of a saviour who can save this world while there is still time. A saviour who can bring those who have done awful things and bring them to the foot of the cross for forgiveness and restoration and transformation. And therefore we pray for our world that the name of Jesus will be known and proclaimed in the midst of it. Because it is not till we reach the end of the book to Revelation 21, when suddenly there is a new heaven and a new earth, when Satan is gone, when God finally comes to live with his people in a new heaven and a new earth, in a perfect relationship where there is no more tears, no more dying, no more pain, that is coming and it is certain, but it is not yet. We hold on to that hope whilst we trust the one who sits on the throne right now. But also look, look, he says, look at what's coming from the throne. I'm I'm jumping about a bit because I can't do all of this passage, so I'm just giving you some edited highlights. Look at verse 5. From the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What does that make you think of? Sinai. Sinai. Did someone say Sinai? Yes. Takes us back to Sinai, to uh, the Mount Sinai. Do you remember when the people of God reached Mount Sinai? And God was going to meet Moses on the mountain, but he was told, gave very strict instructions to the God's people, don't come on the mountain. And they had to kind of, in effect, build fences. And those who were going to go onto the mountain had to go through rigorous, rigorous cleansing and purity kind of um, things in order to get them ready. Because this was to be the holy mountain of God. And if human beings who are not holy walk onto it, he says, you will fry. That's not Bible language, but it's kind of a translation. And so they were told, you keep your distance because we are not holy. And what that tells us is this, is that the one who sits on the throne is not to be taken lightly. He is not like someone we play games with. We listen today to many who would make fun of God, who would laugh at God, who would belittle God and use his name in vain. And then we see those who will walk into a theatre and mow down crowds of people and proclaim that they do it in the name of God. I don't think they realise what they are doing. To dare to say that I do this in the name of God, for one day they will have to stand before that throne. A holy throne, an awesome, scary throne. But it's the same for us as well, isn't it? 
Too easily we treat that throne as just having, you know, grandpa God smoking his pipe, sat on his throne. A kind of nice, safe God that we can just kind of wander up to. Or almost a God that comes and sits on a knee and we can kind of stroke him like a cat that makes us feel better for a period of time. Or maybe just like the God, or rather the man in the Wizard of Oz. Do you remember the Wizard of Oz? You know, this great Wizard of Oz. All this power. And then when you actually get here, you discover it's just this little old man who's got no real power at all. And too easily, by the way we react to what's going on in our world, we reduce God to some little old man who, well, he's lovely, but he doesn't really do anything. He can't really help anything, can he? How dangerous it can be in our worship. The way that we speak of God. Or, and I said this uh, uh, when I did this in the evening. Even sometimes the way we talk about what goes on here. It's so easy, isn't it, to walk away from a service and go, well, I like that song and I didn't like that song. Oh, I didn't like that service because it didn't really make me feel this or make me feel that. And I was a bit provocative and maybe I want to be provocative again and say, actually, what it does to me, frankly, doesn't really matter. Okay, it's important we're built up and encouraged by our times together, but what matters is, has God been given the glory and the worship that he deserves? That's what matters. It's not how we feel, but how does God feel about what's gone on here this morning? God is not someone we take lightly. But next, look behind the throne. What do you see in verse 4? Do you notice what's behind the throne, verse 4? There is a rainbow. It's meant to make us think again of the Old Testament. What does a rainbow make us think of? His promise. A promise not to destroy the earth again. It is a symbol of mercy and forgiveness and commitment. You see, the danger is if you see a throne and you see the holy, holy, holy ones sitting there scarily, you may think, well, I can't possibly go there, just as the uh, Israelites couldn't go onto the mountain and walk up the mountain. But there is a rainbow behind that throne that says, it's okay. I am not going to destroy you. I am not going to destroy you. I have come to forgive you, to redeem you, to forgive uh, to you and pursue with you an eternal relationship. You see, the reason that comes is, I, who, I don't know, am I preaching next week, David? I can't remember. Who's doing, are you doing Revelation 5? Because I'm about to nick some of it. Because actually, if you go to Revelation 5, it tells us that there's something else on the throne. Anyone know what it is? Anyone spot it? In Revelation 5? The Lamb, verse 6. He said, And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. There is at the heart of the throne a lamb. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was slain on a cross, crucified, because on that cross, he took all that separates from us from God, all that makes us unable to walk into God's presence, and he takes it on himself, and he dies for it, and he pays for it, and he deals with it. And he gives to us instead purity and cleansing so that we can walk into the very presence of God. We can walk up to the throne of God without fear that he's just going to cast us off or make us fry. And that's important, actually, when there is chaos going on in the world, because what it says is we have a God we can approach and pray to who has the power to do something about it. We don't stand at a distance thinking, oh, I wonder if God will do something. He says, come close and bring the needs of your world to me. He's saying to John and to his church, keep praying. 
keep coming to me. Just as the writer of the Hebrews says that we don't have to fear, we can now have confidence to enter the most holy place and bring our requests. We can come on our knees before him and pray for this world and for ourselves in the midst of all that's going on. Even with our brokenness, even with our guilt and our failures of the past. Look also what's in front of the throne. Verses 5 and 6, what do you see? It speaks here of the seven lamps and the seven spirits. I'm not going to go into that. We talked a lot about lamps and spirits uh, uh, before. But I want you to take you to verse 6. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Uh, Whenever I go across the uh, channel and I'm on uh, the ferry, I always reach a point in the middle where I think to myself, uh, normally because I've seen a little boat bobbing around. You know, you get sailboats that are going across there with these massive liners or, you know, you know the ferries. And you think, I would not want to be on that tiny little boat being thrust around. Now, I know some here love being on boats in the middle of big oceans. But I bet even you know that you do not play games with the sea. Because the sea will destroy you if you ever play around with it. And actually, in Jewish thinking, in the time uh, that John was around, the sea represented Chaos. It represented everything that was against God and his order. It was something to be feared. It was something to be scared of. And actually so many of us have that sense, don't we? That we often use that imagery of, of a storm brewing up in life and we're being thrown around on the waves and we feel under, out of control. The pressure becomes overwhelming. We feel these kind of things crashing down on us, one thing after another after another. Everything churned up, feeling we could fall apart in a moment. And yet, what is the sea like in front of the throne of, 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 of God? It is utterly flat. It is like a sea of crystal, utterly still. Psalm 89 and verse 8, you rule the swelling of the sea. When it waves rise, you still them. There was Jesus in a boat with his friends. And a storm comes up, all hell breaks loose. And they look at him and go, don't you care? And what does he do? He just simply stands up and says, be still. Be quiet. The one who sits on the throne has the power to still the chaos and the turbulence of our world. But finally, do you see what's around the throne? Verses 4 and 6 and then a bit later on. Actually, in verse uh, 6, we see there at the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now we go, that's weird. Well, Revelation has weirdness to it. It uses imagery. It uses imagery you'll all find in the Old Testament. Everything in Revelation you'll find in the Old Testament. It is a certain type of ritual, but almost certainly it is an image of creation. It reminds us that creation knows who the creator is. Do you remember when Jesus was going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and uh, the Pharisees were trying to get uh, the, uh, Jesus to shut his disciples up? And he said, if I shut them up, the stones will cry out because creation knows who the king is. Creation knows who created it. The issue is, do we 
Do the people who live on this world know who created it? And do they worship the creator? Which then brings us to these others. Do you notice there are 24 elders? Firstly, verse 4, we're told there are 24 thrones around the main throne and seated on them are 24 elders dressed in white with crowns on their heads. And later on we see these, uh, that every time the uh, creatures uh, praise God and worship him, then the 24 elders, we're told, fall down, verse 10, before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and then they praise God. Who are these elders? It's interesting that an emperor had 24 bodyguards. A king would have 12, a proconsul would have 12, but an emperor had 24 Maybe there's something there he's trying to say. But probably it goes deeper. We know that in the book of Revelation, numbers matter. 24 is 12 plus 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Well, that's an imagery that comes up more than once in the book of Revelation. It is a picture of the church, of God's people across the ages. You see, what it's picturing here is God's people worshipping their king. But notice that these elders are sat on their own thrones. It's not an extraordinary image. It's not that here's the throne of God and they're all on their knees in front of it. It is they all have thrones around. Who are these elders? It's not rhetorical. You and me. This is a picture of you. Did you know you were in the Bible? Did you know that? This is you. If you don't believe me, go to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 6. And God raised us up. That is, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say he's going to raise you up and seat you in the heavenly realms. He says he has already done it. Yes, right now he's he's saying to John, Right now, it feels like you're sat on this awful island, having hard labour, having a nightmare. But the reality is that from the heaven's perspective, you are already sat with Christ in the heavenly realms. You are ruling with him. You are sharing a throne with the Lord Jesus Christ and the King of all. You don't look like you're am. You don't look very excited by the idea. You look rather nonplussed by it, if you don't mind me saying. This is you. Exactly. Hallelujah. Let's have a bit more. You are seated on a throne in heaven. It may feel like everything is falling around your ears, but you are seated on a throne because of the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God for you. It is mind-blowing, but notice what the elders do. Verse 10, we're told they fall down and worship and they cast their crowns. That is, they still recognise who the king is. And they know what their role is. The calling of the church is one thing and one thing alone. It is to worship the king no matter what else is going on around. And therefore, what is our calling in the midst of all this mayhem in our world? It is to keep worshipping the king with our voices, with our lives. When we go to the manor, when we go to the, wherever we're doing our work tomorrow, it is to worship our Lord and God, the King, and to proclaim him as King day in, day out, to whoever will hear and to those who won't hear. It is to worship and proclaim the King day in, day out. But he is with you. He is just a curtain's breath away, 
not breath, breadth away. But he's on his throne. He's in control. It's being worked out. Amen.